0: If they can't pay their monthly bills, talking about investments is pointless. It's mean, I think. So you pair it to where people are at in their lives and help them see where they can get unstuck and what they can do and what they can control.
1: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name is Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another fascinating conversation. For all the new listeners, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited you are here today. For the returning listeners, as always, welcome back. I am equally as delighted you are here to join us with Julie Kalkowski and Dr. Nicole White from Creighton University. Financial stress affects all of us. It impacts so many various aspects of our lives that go much deeper and broader than just our money and our accounts. Today, Julie and Dr. White discuss their Financial First program, which since 2009 has been offering evidence-based financial education and coaching. Their program has been shown to reduce financial stress, increase incomes, and improve financial health outcomes. We're going to dive into topics like hope theory and what application it has to our financial health outcomes, the connection between health and finances, how to create psychological well-being from a financial education perspective, how to build effective trust-based financial education programs that actually work. Too often, we have financial literacy programs that don't have enduring or lasting impacts. It's wonderful to see the work Julie and Dr. White have been doing to make sure that their program is providing this enduring impact. You'll hear as we talk just how much Julie and Dr. White care about this program and just how much they believe in the power of creating financial education programs that provide this lasting or enduring impact. We also touch on the social determinants of health and how they can be impacted by our finances. We also discuss how the social determinants of health include our financial well-being, our financial health. The World Health Organization even recognizes as money as one of those determinants. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Nicole White and Julie Kalkowski. Julie and Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to have you both on my podcast. We were just chatting briefly about I spent some time online at Crichton University where you both work. And it was really through that course, the financial psychology certification, that I started this podcast. So it's a, it's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast sharing your insights and your insights from the fantastic work you guys are both doing. I thought we'd start with Julie. When it comes to our careers and the journeys we take, I know for myself, my career began with a certain beliefs or desired outcome that I thought I was going to be this certain financial planner, but my expectations didn't always align with the non-linear approach I've taken to life. I understand you, Julie, you embarked on your career as a social worker with the idea you want to create this systemic change. But... I heard you mention that the, and this is quoting you, the financial hells people were facing sidetracked you. Can you elaborate on this turning point in your career? Sure.
0: When I got out of graduate school, I was working with women who were transitioning from welfare to work. And the biggest issue in their lives seemed to be money. The place I was also working out of also was a food pantry. And we were just aghast that month after month, we had more and more people that needed help. So what we were seeing is that a lot of people were falling through the economic cracks in America and that a lot of families were not making it. And that was just kind of reinforced. There was a study about, I think, on American communities that came out that said 40% of the people in this country are not making enough money to pay their bills. And it's not because they're not working. It's just that expenses are such with huge increases in rent around the country, utilities going much higher, food going higher. People just aren't making enough money to make ends meet. And so when I was trying to do work, what would happen is that money kept undercutting people or, you know, they blow a tire and then they couldn't get to work. So they lost a job that was better paying job. So I felt a lot of the month I was playing dialing for dollars, calling different churches to see if we could people's utilities on or get their tire fixed. And that just seemed like it was needed. But I thought we got to create a more systematic approach or systemic approach. So we have fewer people in these financial
1: hells. Yeah, that when there's financial uncertainty, I I, I can hear from what you're saying that people really experience these financial uncertainties, which kind of, I think, leads into the work that you've been really looking at, Nicole, is how this affects our social determinants of health. Can you maybe touch on how you started looking at our financial lives with the social determinants of health? Maybe just start off with explaining what are the social determinants of health?
2: Yeah, sure. So the social determinants of health are... And really the words are beginning to change. We're calling them more drivers because we don't want people to feel like their future is determined already. These are modifiable social drivers that can make health more challenging for people. So this might be access to food, this might be financial stability or the the money that you have, the resources that you have to spend on things that bring you good health. Sometimes it's education levels, where you live, There's a number of different social drivers that can impact our our health. And we do a, a pretty good job of taking care of things. What do you do when you have high blood pressure? We give you a medicine for that. And so trying to intervene farther upstream is important in prevention in general for our healthcare system. And so this project all started about 10 years ago when Julie came to a group of us faculty members that were in the health sciences departments at Creighton and said, You know, I've been running this financial education and coaching program for a number of years, and I'm seeing anecdotal changes. It's changing women's lives. They look healthier. They seem healthier. They're more optimistic. I'd like to look at the objective health measures to see if if we're making a difference. And so she asked if we would help and do some research on the programming. And that's what really started it all. That was 10 years ago, we had a pilot group where we just did some testing before they received the financial success program, and then a year into the financial success program to see what types of things changed over that time. And everything has been positive since then. You know, we found good results there, which prompted funding from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to conduct a randomized controlled trial. Again, excellent findings from that particular study. And and now we're being funded by Diabetes Care Foundation, by the state or specific patient populations to reduce risk from Diabetes and other chronic disease conditions by addressing financial stability.
1: That's wow, so fascinating. That if you can look at the financial stability, it sounds like I'm, or the financial education, from what I'm hearing, you say it has this ripple effect that really impacts our our, our health outcomes. Sorry, Julie. Maybe take us back to I think it was two thousand nine when you started this project. What was the goal at the time of the project?
0: At that time, an opportunity became available. I'd been doing workplace financial education and had been very successful. And I was also working with a national group, a national task force for United Way Worldwide. They had just started a big partnership with the FINRA.
1: Can you just explain FINRA for people?
0: Financial Investor Regulatory Authority. And so they... You know, they didn't want people scamming people. So they find people when they do that. And so they have this money and they started a foundation to support community based financial education. So what they did out of that national task force, they identified about 15 of us who are known to develop strong programming. And they came to me and said, can you do for single mothers what you've done in the workplace? And I said, sure. So that's when it started in 2009. We have created kind of a unique model of financial education and coaching. And it's um, nine weeks of in class training. And I am a real pill when it comes to trainers because the Federal Reserve Bank did a study and they asked Americans, would you rather talk about your personal sex life or you rather talk about your money? And they're like, we'll tell you anything about our date. Do not ask us about our money. I mean, there's so much shame in America around money. And so we know that if you're gonna move forward in your financial life, you got to be able to trust the person and know that whatever you ask them, you're not going to feel stupid or shamed about the questions you need answered for you to move forward. So we do trainer auditions. We have to have really great trainers. And we do. And a lot of them are actors and they're just really, really good at what they do. And we've got a great curriculum that we put together. Since it was based on single moms, I did focus groups. and I had a single mom be the first director. What we found with the single moms is that if we could address their immediate financial problems, then they would trust us and that they would know that we were there to help them move forward as opposed to being shamed. We we never talk about budget, we talk about, I said that diet and budgets are the new F words because it means scarcity and you, you have to restrict what you're doing. And so we call it a spending plan. So we talk about it that way. You've you earned this money. How are you going to spend it? We also do a year of financial coaching because we found that people don't change their behavior overnight. So as they take little steps forward and they are successful, then they're able to take more bigger steps and risk more things and try different things. And why kind of we led to the health thing is that People were just, they were sleeping at night, their acid reflux was gone, their headaches were gone. They looked better. A lot of them stopped and hugged me at Target or Walgreens, and I didn't know who they were because they looked so much better. And that's when I went to the researchers at, at the faculty members at Creighton, and I said, look, something's going on here. That's kind of how we all got to this. And actually, part of it, too, was when I was working with those single moms, transition to work right out of grad school, is that the night before I did my first presentation to a master's of public health students, I found out the third woman out of the seven of the class had died before she was 53. And I was just undone. And I went to that class and I just started sobbing. I kept saying women of color should not be dying before they're 53 and that three of those seven. And so anyway, when I talked to the professor about that, she said, Julie, what you're doing by, by significantly reducing their financial stress, you're going to delay the onset of chronic diseases. They're not going to get diabetes or hypertension so early. They're not going to get it in their 40s and 50s. They're not going to go to nursing homes in their 50s and 60s. So she said, "You can really make a huge change in that community just by significantly reducing the financial stress." And the wonderful women faculty I worked with at Creighton, like, "Yeah, we'll try that," and they did. And that's and that's what we're
1: seeing. Wow! Thank you so much for sharing that. I thought it was really important when you talked about, I wrote this, trust the person, like the financial educators, you had to make sure that trust was was there. I heard you say a reason, I think what I heard you say, one of the ways to build that trust is solving the immediate problems. Were there other ways that you've observed that helped create this trust? And I ask this because as we know, at times financial services industry can be filled with do this or you should do this or which really evokes this feeling of shame. So how have you also observed that you can really build this trust where people open up and feel comfortable to let them like expose their true selves?
0: What we've done and sometimes worse, I've been called that my group is not very professional. But what we do is we have real people. So we have people who have lived through financial hells. And so when they, my trainers talk and when my financial coaches, they're speaking from experience. They can talk about what has happened in their lives and they're like, they get me. They've been where I've been. You know, they understand. It's not that I'm making a bad choice, it's that. You know I can only buy 10 pills instead of 30 because I got to feed my kids the rest of the month you know so they know that they're not going to be judged they know that people understand where they come from and most of my my financial coaches are people who have had really difficult financial lives and they just don't want people to go through the same financial hells that they went through and so they can prevent that and same with my trainers a lot of them we've had bankruptcies horrible student loan debt payday loans, you know, medical bills. Oh, my God, medical bills. So we don't even go that. that's the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. I mean, it's just crazy that you should lose your house because you came down with cancer. I mean, but we won't. I know that's not what we're just here to talk about. But I do want to let people know I can get better. You know, if we had our single moms are making 24 four two in the, that clinical trial that Nicole referenced, and if they can do better financially, then a lot of people can
1: do that. I have so many follow-up questions, but you you mentioned something at the last comment there that I want to bring in another paper. Well, you said they can get better. So there's another paper, and, and Nicole or Julie, whoever wants to answer this, around building hopefulness through financial education and coaching. Can you speak to what is hope theory? And on the surface, we may not... <laughs> of integrated hope theory and financial education. But the paper was really, really interesting on how it utilized hope theory. And can you just speak to the benefits of hope? Sure,
2: so the idea behind hope theory is that hope is a muscle and it is a muscle that can be strengthened and hope can be increased. It's not just an emotion, but it's a, it's a cognitive process. And so we can increase hope through activities that affect our patterns of thought. And so, hope theory is a behavior change framework that basically says that people who are more hopeful are more likely to be successful in changing a behavior. So we can apply this to financial behaviors. And the framework kind of has two different aspects of it. They have something that they call pathway thinking, um, and pathway thinking is, you know, do I have the tools, the resources, and a plan in place to help me achieve my goal? So people that have tools and resources and a plan are more likely to be successful. And the other part of hope theory is an agency pathway, an agency thinking. And with agency thinking, it basically says that if someone feels confident in their ability to be successful with their goal, if somebody feels highly motivated to achieve their goal, they're more likely to be successful. And so if you can combine those two things giving them the pathway, giving them the confidence and motivation, you can increase their hopefulness and which leads to greater success with behavior in and of itself. And so this is kind of threaded through Julie's financial success program in many of the ways she's already you know, discussed, but they've got a money management system. I don't, Julie, do you want to talk kind of to the aspects of that pathway and agency that are built into the philosophy of your
0: program structure? Sure. So what we do is we actually kind of pull back the curtains, like this is how credit reports work. This is how you can talk to debt collectors. We don't just give them a paper, we show or we role play, or we just show them, then people share their experiences. So there's a lot of peer learning, you know, like, oh my God, when that happened to me, you know, so it's just really, and again, it that helps normalize the problems that people are having to know that they're not the only one. But the other thing, Nicole, I wanted to speak a little bit to the bandwidth hacks, because what we are seeing, Sean, is when we reduce people's financial stress, they have more space and energy to address stuff. So Nicole can kind of further flesh that out.
2: Yeah. So there's a book called Scarcity, and it talks about what happens when you don't have enough time, enough money or enough food in your life. And so as it relates, you know, to this money piece of things, there's a theory called Oh, I can't remember. We'll have to look it up. But basically what it says is that you wake up each morning with a concrete or defined amount of self-control. And so for people who have less money, they have to make more difficult decisions throughout the day. Am I going to keep the lights on or am I going to pick up my prescriptions? Am I going to put food on the table for my kids or am I going to make my car payment this month? And those difficult decisions erode their self-control. And then by the end of the day, they've you know all of their time and energy has been exhausted they don't have time to think about am i going to eat healthy foods am i where am i going to get my physical activity those other types of activities they just don't have the bandwidth to be able to consider that and it kind of aligns with maslow's hierarchy of needs as well that you've got to meet these basic needs before you can start addressing more well-being and self-actualization you know those higher levels of of maslow's pyramid And so we take that into consideration, you know, as well. But the tough thing is that this scarcity of money and this erosion of self-control increases, you know, poor eating habits, increases the likelihood that people turn to smoking or alcohol, you know, to cope with some of the stress that they have. And there are studies that show that people who are under chronic financial stress are more likely to drink, to smoke, to be sedentary and to have poor eating habits. And all of those things just kind of, just build on each other. And that's what really increases risk for chronic disease in the long
1: run. It's just really interesting. And uh, I, I did read that book and I feel like it's just a fascinating book. And I thought about that. Actually, it's interesting that you've woved it into the research when I was reading your papers. And my wife's actually a public health nurse and I'm in financial services. And in the book, she talks about the two, public health and financial services. And I believe it's the stress they found was the same as not having an entire night asleep on our like the bandwidth tax that she talks about. Yeah, What did you experience, if anything at all, when if people have these low cognitive ability right now because they have such a cognitive stress on themselves with financial scarcity, it could be health scarcity, and then introducing hope, do people at times meet that with resistance, being like, hope, I have no hope. I've got, so to speak, a broken leg and you're trying to get me to walk how do you start to integrate in hope so that they could start to, I, I like this agency thinking, how they could start to to develop this. But I'm just wondering, when, when they're in that like fight or flight moment, how do people receive hope?
0: I don't know if they receive hope, but what happens is we just give them small, actionable steps. So the first night of class, mm. what we do, Sean, is we hold up a pencil case and it's empty and say, everything that you spend, get a receipt and put in your pencil bag and come back the next night of class. So the second week of class, we have a whole other pencil cases. And I don't know what it is, but since 2009, there's a woman who has every receipt that she's gotten for the whole week. More than half the people had nothing. And the, the others that have had one or two receipts, they're like, well, you know, I only did one or two receipts and I, I, I can't do this. And then my trainer says, hey, hey, how many receipts did you save all last year? And like, well, none. She's like, you got that. You've already done more for your finances in one week than you did all last year. You can do this. And so we don't give like, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's all happy. Mm-hmm. But we they start seeing that they can do stuff and they start seeing that their actions can make their life better. And when you start having that, it just kind of cascades. And then if you're sleeping better, if you're less stressed, if you're not getting calls, if you're not getting the overdraft fees or the late fees, and you'll be able to start figuring out how to save a little money and you see where your money's going. I had got asked by a researcher from Harvard about our smoking cessation program, So that was one of the findings from the clinical trial was there was a statistical significance reduction in smoking. And so he you want to know what my smoking cessation program? And I said receipt is, oh, no, no, you don't understand. And I said, oh, I do. And I said, if you're a single mom and you look at your receipt and realize that you spent fifty nine dollars last week on cigarettes and your kids were a little hungry, that's really motivating to quit smoking. And so that's what we're seeing. So it's just seeing how their behaviors influence what happens to their life. And then they start feels like they have some control, Sean. And once you feel like you have some control in your life, you have agency, right, Nicole? That's you can start moving forward because you can see things, too, because that bandwidth attacks, I had a Miss Ella when the early 1980s when I was down cancer, because she'd say, baby stress makes you stupid. And it does because you can't see options and alternatives because you're just surviving. And when you're so busy surviving, you can't plan ahead. You can't have see what your options are. You're just like, I, I just got to keep my lights on. So we're trying to move people past that. It doesn't happen overnight. And when, when they leave, we're like, hey, we're not promising you life is gonna be better. You're going to fall into a hole again, but it won't be as steep. And you've got a team now The the financial success program is behind you. This team is behind you. You are not alone. You have lifelines. Call us.
1: It's very, very interesting. And what I found, like, I guess why I really appreciate this hope theory, bring it in is to use your words again, it's cultivating that sense of agency that, as you talked about, has a cascading snowball effect. And I think at times, some of our financial education programs are really heavily le- reliant on the financial number of like, okay, once we get to this savings account, of course, the money does make some of these feelings they alleviate them. But I like how you're really focusing on, like like the psychological well-being of the individuals. I wonder if you could touch on some observations that you've made on the psychological benefits that people are getting beyond the dollars and cents. And you've touched on some already, exercising, smoking, sleeping better. Are there any other ones that that you've noticed?
2: Interpersonal relationships. I think people get mm. along better with their spouse or you know, they're not because they're not fighting
0: about money. Mm. It's another finding. And their kids are acting better. I mean, like sometimes they'll say, my kids are acting better, but it's because mom isn't stressed out of her mind all the time. And instead of when the kid says something, instead of mom saying, what? They, they say, oh yeah. oh, yeah, honey, what is it? I mean, it's just as amazing when you're not stressed all the time about money, what, how money, what that does for you. You can see things that you couldn't see before or like stuff that seemed overwhelming before. It's like, oh, I can do that, you know, and, I, and I'm and i not alone. I don't have to do, I have a financial coach and, you know, she's not going to do it for me, but she's going to help me walk through this process. So till I get to a point where I don't need this anymore. So it's just small baby steps. move. And when people start feeling like they're moving forward, I think that makes a difference too. When you think about the relationship between stress and finances, we
2: often hyper-focus on how much money you're making, your income, your salary, because that's clearly very important because it allows us access to healthy foods. It allows you to get to your doctor when you need to, to pay for your medicines. But that link between health and finances isn't fully defined just by how much money you make. There's a significant portion that's because of the stress. And when you feel more financial stress, it causes cascading issues in your body. So it increases inflammation, it dysregulates your immune system and those pieces of it are really important in predicting chronic disease risk. And then as well, we know when you have a lot of financial stress, your lifestyle tends to be not as healthy um, because you're stressed and coping and you don't have the bandwidth to consider those lifestyle things. So between the actual direct Issues that stress causes in the body, and then these lifestyle decreases, you know, in healthy lifestyle that really potentiates that chronic disease risk as well.
0: One kind of really tragic example. One woman said about five weeks into the, uh, the nine-week class, she said, "You know, I'm not drinking a bottle of wine every night. I just I'm not doing it Sunday through through Thursday, and I do do that on Friday and Saturday." But so. She was just so stressed out of her mind. The only way she could cope was to drink herself to sleep every night. And and now she's just from seven bottles of wine a night, uh, a week to two. But I mean, people just cope because they don't know who to talk to. They don't know who to turn to. A lot of them think this is the way my grandma's life was. This is the way my mom's life was. It's not going to get any better until they kind of meet the financial success team. And then they're like, "Go! Oh, it can get better. And then really. Initially, how the, when this program, it was all word of mouth. People like, you help my coworker, you help somebody from my church, you help. So I had thought when we did the clinical trial that we weren't going to be as successful because people were coming in because they had seen success and they wanted what those women had. And the program, I uh, this is all funded. I have to raise all the money for this program. So it's all funded by grants and I could always get grants to do financial education and coaching for single moms, but I couldn't get it for other populations. So that's kind of why we had focused on single moms. Now it's open to everybody, but but you have to have type two diabetes for one program. you have to be an adult who is receiving medic, Medicaid benefits in Nebraska for the other. So it's all kind of contingent on funding. I think one other, just to add to this thought about is it
2: the money or is it the psychological piece of it and so, a really interesting finding from the randomized control trial. One of our primary outcomes was looking at changes in income for the participants. And what we found was that, on average, mean annual income increased by twenty percent and the people who were receiving the financial education and coaching. But and so we wanted to know, you know, is the decrease in financial stress because they have more money, you know, to to use and to work with on a daily basis? So we did a sub-analysis of the people who, had a reduction in financial stress to look to see how much of it was predicted by an increase in income. And what we found was that it wasn't predicted by the increase in income, that even people who were were having the same income level throughout the duration of the study had reduced financial stress. And we didn't have a chance to figure out exactly why, but our thoughts on it are that they were their financial behaviors had improved. So they were saving more, they were spending less, they were changing their financial behaviors. And so they had more stability with the income that they've been making consistently and steadily over the course of the year that we followed them.
1: Wow, that that is really interesting. And I mean, that goes, like you're creating real change, not just like, because if it was the income, the rise in income, and that caused the psychological changes, well, if the income... Is change for some reason in the future, then perhaps the psychological benefits would decrease. But that's neat how that wasn't the case.
0: And we're hoping it'll trickle down to their kids. So the kids see mom's behavior change and they, they see how life was before the program and how life is after the program. And it's kind of like the moms are modeling for their kids, you know, how to make your finances work, even if you're not making a lot of money.
1: I would have to assume so when we know how much socialized learning comes from watching mom and dad or whomever is in the household so it has such profound changes we've been talking a lot about this financial coaching and education can you just help i know we're taking a step way back but i think it's important what is your view on financial education and coaching and maybe differentiate the two and i ask this because from what i'm hearing this is not gathering people in the classroom and going through theory and this is how you do a spending plan per se. I hear this is really embracing, I guess, the theory of coaching.
0: You know, when we started this program, I I didn't want to do financial education. I wasn't going to do financial education because they had started doing financial education, I think, in the late 70s in America. And I saw that it didn't change the damn thing. And I thought, I'm too old. Mm-hmm to get into something that's not going to really help people change their lives, not going to do it. But there was a woman from the Federal Reserve, Sharon Olmec, and she was a pain in the butt. And she kept saying, let's do workplace financial education. And finally, she wore me down. So we did workplace financial education. And then a year after the program, I walked in and this woman's like, Julie, Julie Kalkowski. She's hugging me like and I couldn't move. And I looked at her and I got nothing. And I was like, well, how are you? And she's like, oh my God, my life is so much better. You're telling me my life would get so much better going through this program. And she talked about how she lost 40 pounds and stopped fighting with her husband anymore. She's doing better in school. And and I'm like, God, this is really good. I mean, I knew it'd it'd be that good. And she said, and you don't know who I am. And I said, you're right. And she said, well, I'm Angie, I've lost 40 pounds, I'm off my high blood pressure, two medications she was off. So it's like, oh, my God, this is great. You know, it's really so that's when I kind of drank the Kool-Aid about how financial education, if you structured it so you could actually help people change their financial behaviors. Then it was worth investing your time and energy into, but just talking to people about investments. And it's like, if they can't pay their monthly bills, talking about investments is pointless. It's mean, I think. So you pair it to where people are at in their lives and help them see where they can get unstuck and what they can do and what they can control and then move forward. And. You know, sometimes it's going to take a couple years to dig out where they are, but then if they've got a plan, like she told me, she's like, we're, we've got 17 months to go on our plan, but we are paying down debt every month and we're going, moving forward. And that's what, you know, she was just thrilled. And she just, you know, she said, it's great. She said, the only time I used to talk to my husband was when we thought about money. And now it's like a second honeymoon. And so that's when I, I just think that whole thing about how it's not what you do with finding our what you teach is about how you teach it. So if you can connect it, but you can engage people. And when we do trainer auditions, we had one woman who had done professional training in a big city for 25 years. And she wanted to work with us because she'd moved back to Omaha, but she walked in in her Jimmy Choo shoes and a Chanel um, suit. And we just knew the woman would not ask for anything because, she made what she was wearing and cost more than they made in a month, you know, so it was kind of like, you know, so we just really want people to understand they're not stupid. There's nothing to be ashamed with. If you're stressed out of your mind about your money, you're a normal American, but there are things you can do about it. And so that's what we talk about. That's what we focus on class. What are some things you can do about it? So that's, I think that's why it works. and That's why we have a really great retention rate. And because most people think I'm out of my mind to do nine weeks of financial education. They're like, mm, good luck with that. It's like, hey, it's been working since 2009. I'm not going to change it now.
1: Super, super interesting. Just how it, you could tell how much you enjoy doing this. And I, I mean, I can imagine experiences like the Angie story really would resonate with you to see that you're making a difference. I can't remember the TED talk, but The point of the TED talk was, you might not be able to change the entire world, but you can change one person's perspective of the world, and it seemed like you did that with Angie, and I'm sure many others. Mm -hmm. Nicole, from from the researcher perspective, what have you observed that may I don't want to say surprised, but may have yeah, let's use surprised or piqued your interest the most as you observe what Julia's been doing for the last twenty years or since 2009?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think. And I am prevention focused. And one of the hard things when you're trying to take care of people is that there's issues that you feel like you're not equipped to help them with, or, you know, this is an issue that you have, but what can I do about it? And so I think something that's really neat about this program, and I think about the way that it's changed my mindset, and hopefully I'm teaching this to the students, the health profession students at Creighton, is that it's really a a team-based care and having a novel partner like a financial educator, a financial coach, a financial planner to be there and be part of the team to help take care of some of these social drivers of health can really change outcomes pretty drastically, but very much improve the quality of life of each of the individuals that you're working with. And so it's not often that we consider an intervention like this. We turn to medicines and procedures and things like that. But um, I hope that we see more of this and I hope this type of programming becomes more readily available to people who could benefit from it because it has definitely made a difference in the lives of the individuals that we've put through the studies, you know, our our guinea pigs that we've studied in this way. But I think it really just teaches us that we, uh, if you're treating a patient, you need to treat the whole person. And that includes their financial status and, you know, those woes, as well as all the physical things that we tend to more traditionally look at as providers.
1: You were just making me think is one day, if we dream really hard, could this be prescribed from a physician?
2: I think that's the end game of our hope with our research is that Julie, this poor soul has been (laughs) knocking on doors and trying to raise monies.
1: I, I feel like it's a rich soul. (laughs) <laughs> when you use the soul spelt like, like your soul, but anyways.
2: Yeah, but you know, I mean, I think she's had to raise private funds to be able to make this available to people for the last however many years. And if it can change health and the trajectory of health, then should it be prescribed and should it be covered and paid for by insurance to keep people healthy? And I think having a sustainable revenue source for this type of intervention is
0: one of the objectives of the research that we're taking on. So we're not draining big or anything, Sean. You know, just.
1: (laughs) I think you are. And it's good. Maybe someone listening will uh, throw a donation in. (laughs) I see the time here. And I know you guys are both very busy. As you continue down this path for both of yourselves from your unique. I, I like this blend of Nicole has her one perspective from the academic side. Julie, you're in the in the program with the individuals, trainers. What excites you? about what you're doing. Uh, Julie, I could sense your tone a few times that there's quite a bit of excitement, but as you're now at this, like September, 2023, what is exciting you about the future of this program? You
0: know, Nicole talked about quality of life and I just, we had talked to this woman, Susan, last December, and she had started the program in October. And one of the things she said to us is she said, this program has brought joy back to my life. In August, my daughter and my, and my doctor were talking about having me move into assisted living for my apartment and I didn't want to do that. So I joined your program in October and now she said, I I have joy back in my life and assisted living is off the table. So I think if we can focus on prevention, I mean, it's so much cheaper to keep Susan in her apartment and having her paying her own bills versus moving her to assisted care and what like two thirds of our Medicaid dollars in Nebraska go to assisted living facilities to keep people in institutional care. And most people do not want to do that. So if we can, we could think of all the money we could save if we just invested in prevention. So that's what really excites me, Sean, is like, it's so much cheaper it's so much more cost effective. Plus people have their lives instead of having them cut short. And when you're sick, You don't enjoy life. And if you're always worried about your blood sugars or your hypertension, you can't really have fun with your kids. So that, to me, is the most exciting. We can get people their lives back and that it's so much cheaper, for God's sake. (laughs) Nicole, I know I I do have quite the level of enthusiasm that I do, but... (laughs)
2: Well, but what I guess what excites me is, you know, when we started this project, after we did the pilot studies, we were seeking funding for the work and we would submit grant applications to healthcare funders, you know, across the United States and nobody would get it. They said, this isn't health. You're not impacting, you know, this isn't a health intervention. This is something different, you know? And so we just, we got a million rejection letters, rejection after rejection. Finally, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, you know, figured it out. But what's neat is that I feel like more people are starting to understand, you know, associate this with, with health, because now we've got Medicaid that is funding, you know, the, the intervention. We've got healthcare, former healthcare providers that have a foundation that are funding. We have the state that's funding us, you know, yeah. Medicaid providers, insurance is is funding. So To me, it's exciting that people are beginning to recognize that these non-medical social needs are important to remember and they just see the relationship better.
1: You know, I might be mistaken, but I feel like the WHO, the World Health Organization, has their determinants of health is reducing poverty on a global scale is, is listed as one of the main determinants of health. And I, I guess that speaks to to the work you guys are doing. That the WHO recognizes this as well, and yet it seems far and few between that we actually implementing that.
2: I think public health providers have a much greater understanding of the social drivers of of health, more so than some of the boots on the ground providers and more traditional healthcare entities. But that's changing too. I think. There's a much greater emphasis on food as medicine initiatives that has happened more recently. And the tide is beginning to shift with these social drivers and interventions that help to address that. Mm-hmm.
1: Question, the Angie individual, whether this is my question is answered by Angie herself or an example of an Angie. How long was she in the program before she made that comment to you? A year. A year. That's it. Hey? I feel like that's remarkable. Is that a year she's saying that brought joy back into my life and everything's changed? Well, that was Susan. Angie was the oh. one who,
0: called me, who helped me drink the Kool-Aid about financial education, but it was Susan right. had started so. the program in September. And then in December, she had talked about having joy back in her life and she, had, her prescriptions had gone from 17 down to 11. And so it was just like, she's feeling better, she's more active um, and willing to take more risk. And I think that's, When you have more bandwidth, when you have more energy, when you're sleeping, you know, when you feel, when you feel better physically, you're more willing to try things and do things.
1: And, you know, to bring this to a close, it just makes me think of what's the point of this all. It's to have joy, to enjoy, you know, to find moments of joy in our lives. And I I really appreciate this bringing hope theory and helping people build that confidence through agency, because that is you've talked about for the last hour, it stems out to all realms of life, not just the bank account. However, as you pointed out, inadvertently, it increases the bank account in some the 20% that you talked about. So I think it's just fascinating work that you both are doing. Well, thank you. It's so
0: fun to see the changes in people over the months. And it's not a silver bullet. I want to be very clear, it does not work for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I, as I tell them the first night of class, if you think this program is going to work for you, you're right. And if you think this program isn't going to work for you, you're also right.
1: Very, very interesting.
0: We'd be glad to come back again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I want to come I want to come down there.
0: (laughs) You're welcome.
1: Anytime. I think it's so, so interesting. So a question that I've asked every uh, every guest so far, the last over 150 people, is now this is turning more personal side. A, A lot of my podcast is around cultivating a happy and healthy relationship with money. So let's imagine you both are at end of life, and you're sitting on a front porch, looking out at a view, could be anything, that brings you peace, ease, and contentment, and you decide to bring out a notebook and write a letter to your children's, if you have children, your children's children on what you learned about having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a key theme to that letter?
0: For me, it would be the tagline that Dulce, one of the first women who went through our program, she said, before your program, money was controlling me. Now I am controlling it. So don't let kind of money be the driver of your life, be the major factor in your life, but you can control it by what you're, by the choices you make. And sometimes I don't want to, that's, I'm just really clear that when you're poor, your choices is all the choices are bad. But if you can start to see where there's some give and you can start to see from your receipts that you do have choices, then you can make some changes. So it's more about money being, helping you get to the quality of life you want to go as opposed to money driving you into the ditch again and again and again. Thank you.
2: That was very profound, Julie. And I don't know that I have an on the spot uh, I don't want to go, I don't want to go after that.
0: Um, You're such a baby.
2: (laughs) But yeah, I, you know, I, I I think finances and your spending play an important part in your health and your well-being. And so managing that is in, is, is a a great way to take care of yourself and hopefully provide longevity and lots of good quality of life and and lots more years in your life as well.
1: Well, thank you, Nicole. Thank you to both of you. Thank you so much for not only joining me, but the found work that you both are doing.
0: Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, and it's an honor to get to do this work, you know, having to get up and you get paid for making people's lives better, right?
1: (laughs) Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F Word podcast. If you're listening before you head out, you can support the show in two different ways. One is you can let your friend... Family or colleague know about the conversations that we're having over here that center around the human experience of money. Second, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show so you get the next notification when new episodes are released. And while you're there, if you could leave a review, that'd be great. Until next week, take care. I'm
0: on a mountain without a top. My is and now I spend my
2: time. Now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the
0: sail